If you've got your Bibles, would you turn to Genesis 1, verses 24 to 28. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the authors that's been really helpful to me in the last five years or so is uh, an author named Charles Taylor. He's a philosopher um, in Canada, and um, we actually have some of his resources or uh, some resources about some of his work. Now, he is not... Um, he is a good philosopher in terms of... I'm not, I'm not handing these resources out as a systematic theology for you, but he, he, has, he is incredibly helpful in terms of understanding our age uh, and understanding kind of how people operate in the age that, that we live in, this current moment that we find ourselves in. Um, now, most people in America are confessionally theistic. They say they believe in God, right? Most people in America say they believe in God. But, but I think Taylor, in his book, helps us understand that actually, even though most people are confessionally theistic, we're functionally very secular, or at least we're operating more from secular instincts than from theistic instincts. And that's interesting. One of the things that he really does in the book is he kind of traces how we went from 1500 uh, AD, where in 1500 AD, it would almost be impossible to not believe in God. Everybody believed in God. Everybody had a sense of fear of the Lord or dependence on God. Everyone prayed to the Lord. How did we get from there to a day where it's increasingly being hard, it's increasingly harder to be a confessing theist, but it's really hard to function as a confessing theist, to have what I would call theistic instincts and not secular instincts. And again, I mean, Taylor's helpful. Even people that have secular instincts like having some sort of theism or deism. Uh, you know, I've often said everybody believes in God at funerals, right? You go to a funeral and, and when somebody says, uh, well, we know we'll see them again or something, nobody says in that moment, no, you won't, you know. You just vanish. You just, I mean, everybody, everybody believes in God at a funeral or, or when somebody gets sick or something, everybody wants to be able to say, well, we're praying for you. Or they at least want to be able to say, here's something that is said in a more secular setting, send good thoughts, right? And what does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's, uh, to quote Christian Smith, it's, 
It's therapeutic deism, right? It's, I want there to be some sort of God out there, but only when it makes me feel good. And when it doesn't make me feel good, there is no God. I'll just keep functioning in a secular way. So how did we get here? How, how did we get from a world that was universally theistic, not just confessionally, but also in terms of our instincts? We operated from theistic or God-believing instincts to a world that's universally basically secular. And, and Charles Taylor talks a lot about this. One of the things he talks about is the, the disenchantment of our age. As Christians, we believe that we are a part of a created order. And so as Christians, we believe in the created order. We believe in the natural world. We study the natural world. We love mathematics and science and exploring the world, the created order, the natural world that God has created. But because we believe that beyond the natural world, there is a creator, there's enchantment to our age, right? There's something behind the created order. There's more to this world than just what we can see and measure and touch. There are things that are really hard to explain in physical ways. We need metaphysical or supernatural realities to really explain the world rightly. That's a Christian viewpoint. And of course, within that viewpoint, we believe that our lives have meaning. We believe that there is a telos to these things, that there's an end to all these things, that there is really a morality, there is right and wrong that have been set in place, right? We are a part of a created order that implies a creator who has ordered. But if you remove that creator, and that's really what's happened kind of in our age, we have removed, we become disenchanted with the creator, to quote Taylor. And we have exchanged theism for really the dominant worldview of the day, secular humanism. Whereas we are really the center of our identity, the center of our being. To quote Nietzsche, God is dead and we have killed him, right? He's saying something to that. It's, it's us that have killed him, and we've killed him because we've exalted ourselves. We don't need God anymore. We, we don't need to live in a theistic age. We don't need to be enchanted by these silly myths anymore because now we, as human beings, we really know better. You've heard me say this before, some of you. I think art is helpful in helping us understand these things. The, the great anthem of uh, secular humanism is the song by Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, We Are the World. And uh, for some of y'all, this is an old song, but for some of y'all that, you know, still remember the 80s, great decade, um, you remember this great moment where, uh, like, Tina Turner and uh, Bruce Springsteen and um, Kenny Loggins, I mean, it was basically all the big hitters of the 1980s were there, and they all sang this song together and here's how it went. And this is really, we, we like this song. In fact, I like this song. Like, it, it has a great beat. But it really is the anthem of secular humanism. So here's the message. We are the world. We, right, are the children. We're the ones to make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. And here's the key. We're saving our own lives, right? We don't need anybody to save us. We just need to work together. We are saving our own lives. There's, it's true, we'll make a brighter day, just you and me. This is the anthem of secular humanism. There's an interesting moment in this song 
um, that happens later. And this is kind of classic American secular humanism. The song starts to kind of quote scripture, talk about God. It's when Willie Nelson starts to sing. And so Willie Nelson comes on in the song, if you've seen the big performance, and you know, he does, as God has shown us by turning stones to bread. And then he says, so we must all lend a helping hand, right? Well, that's an interesting line in the song, isn't it? I don't know if you caught it, but God actually didn't. They're, they're trying to like quote the Bible here, but God didn't turn stones to bread. Remember what happened? Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones to bread, but that was the temptation. He didn't do that, right? And so, but actually like they, I don't even know if they knew, if, I don't know if they see the irony in this, but they're actually reaffirming the secular humanism that the song proposes, that Jesus, depend on yourself. Don't listen to the word of God. Turn the stones to bread because you are the world, Jesus, right? We don't need God anymore. We are the world. We are the ones to make a brighter day. To quote Nietzsche again, God is dead and we have killed him. But again, if there is no God, if there is no real order in the world, then there's no real meaning, then there's no real purpose. In a world like that, if you want meaning, if you want order, if you want value, you have to go make it. Now, at first, that sounds very liberating, doesn't it? Oh, I have to go make my own meaning, right? I have to go make my own order. I have to go make my own identity. I have to go tell my own story. At first that sounds, and this is very Western, at first that sounds incredible. It's like, yes, I'm gonna go chart my own way. I'm gonna go make my own identity. When Casey Musgrave says, follow your arrow wherever it points, that sounds awesome. Because yes, I wanna follow my arrow wherever it points. But why in a world like this, don't we feel satisfied? Why is there so much fear and anxiety? Why do we feel so lost? Well, if you follow your arrow wherever it points, but there actually is a north, and it's that way, not that way, then you won't feel more satisfied. You'll actually only feel more confused, more lost, more nervous, more out of place than ever before, and that's where we are. You know, our parents were more honest in their songs. I think of Paul Simon who said, Kathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, they've all come to look for America, to look for something, to find some identity, find some way, but I'm empty and I'm aching. The point I'm trying to make here is this. Humanism killed God. God is dead. We have killed him. We don't need God anymore. But the great irony is this. In killing God, we've killed ourselves. Now, not only is God dead, man is dead too. Some of the very common assumptions that we all should understand about humanity are now all up for question, right? 
I mean, basic questions like which gender has the baby, right? That's the thing that we're talking about right now. Okay, well, why? If, if there is no received order, then things that seem silly to even talk about are what is gender? I mean, all these conversations that we're having right now, these things that seem silly to talk about or the confusion that we have over sex and work and race, things that have been around from the beginning of time, why are we confused over these things? The reason is we, we don't have a compass. We don't have any received order. We all have to go find our own identity. We all have to go make our own way. And again, that seems incredible. It's like, yes, I'm free. But it's actually incredibly terrifying. And I'll actually leave you in a place that leaves you empty and, ang and aching. And you may not know why. Man is dead. And the very being that killed God, or God is dead, and the very being that killed God is now left dead in a world with no God. As Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, then anything is permissible. And that's terrifying. If there is no telos, if there is no end to our lives, we are left to create one. And that leaves us in a very dangerous and terrifying place. Now, I hope that we here, right, at least have some clarity on these things, right? We're still confused. We still live in a confused age, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here saying that I have all the answers. But because I know God, as much as I understand him, as much as he can speak his, clearly through his word to me, we have some answers. We have some truth. So I hope that that's who we are here. We are see ourselves as people who in Christ have been called out of the confused world toward union and toward delight and toward relationship in God. And that the better we know God, the better we understand who he is, the better we understand the truth that he's revealed to us, actually the more we'll understand ourselves and the more joy and the more satisfaction and wholeness, shalom, we'll experience so I have two goals for this series. The first, and I'm always a little careful, I always get a little nervous when churches start talking about like the world out there. We can very quickly start to sound like the Pharisee in Luke 17. It's like, oh God, I'm glad I'm not like the tax collector, right? I'm, I tithe, you know, I give everything, I, uh, I give my stuff away, I go to the temple, right? I'm glad I'm not like them, right? I want to be very clear at the beginning. This is not like a they-them sermon. This is a we-us sermon. The problem is, is we are like them. The problem is, is this is who we are. We live in the secular world. The problem is, is we have secular instincts. Even though we're supposed to be called out into union with God, most of us, I want you to do this, operate by secular instincts a lot of the time. And so the first goal is that we would be reminded of who we are in Christ and that we would grow not in secular instincts, but in Christian instincts, in God-centered instincts. And then secondly, I want to help equip, I hope that our church is better equipped through this series to engage in a secular age. Um, again, the majority of people around you don't claim to be atheists, probably, even though that's increasingly popular. But the majority of people around you are operating from secular instincts. How do you engage in an age like that. So 
So let's get started. And, and I really want to start with our own identity, right? We don't have to go looking for an identity, right? We don't have to go figure out who we are. We don't have to go figure out which way our arrow is pointing. We actually have been assigned an identity, and it's an amazing identity, and it's a glorious identity by God himself who created us. We're a part of a created order, and God has created us. And so you don't have to go very far in the Bible to figure this out. In fact, it's the very first chapter. God, of course, gives this beautiful picture of his creation and this beautiful display of God ordering and creating the world to display his glory. And then he says in verse 24, now this is interesting. He's talking about how different life forms bring about new life in their image or after their kind. He says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. This is kind of an amazing thing about the created order. This does not really have anything to do with the sermon, but I just watched the child dedication. You ever like see that? Like, how did that even happen? These parents up here had children. Like, how does that happen? How can human beings make more human beings? I mean, even just that very basic thing is amazing. Well, this is part of how God designed the world, that living things would bring about other living things. And this is important to, to hear the context according to their kind, right? Orange trees don't produce peanuts, right? Cats don't have dogs, right? Living things bring about other living things according to its kind. Now, with that in mind, the author in verse 26 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? God is speaking. Let us make man like us, according to our kind, if you will, and let them have dominion over the fish of the See and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over creeping things that creep on the earth. Let us make man in our image. That is an incredibly profound passage. And, and I think if you want to understand who you are, identity, we need to start there. You have been made in the image of God. You are an eternal being. You have been made after God's kind, if you will. God has given something to you. He's, he's implanted something into you that is sacred. And so four things about what this means to be made in the image of God. And the first thing is it's a, it's a sacred identity. There is something sacred and dignified about every human life. It's actually an amazing thing to do what we're doing right now and encounter other human beings you're encountering other human beings, all made in the image of God with abilities to reflect the very nature and power of God. There's a profound quote that C.S. Lewis writes in his little book, The Weight of Glory, where he talks about this. I've read this before, but I think it's worth reading again now. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's talking about that we're eternal beings, right? You've been made in the image of God. And just like God, you are an eternal being with this image upon you. It's a serious thing to live in a world like that. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we're in some degree or another helping one another to one of these two destinations. 
It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but is the immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit, moving them to immoral horrors or everlasting splendors. Do you realize who you are? Do you realize what this human life is, this treasure that God has given us? You've been made in the image of God, like God. There's so much capacity in you. You're gonna be an eternal being somewhere, either with God, being transformed in his glory forever or forever, or apart from God, following pathways of destruction and horror. Who are you? Do you, do, you, do you see this? Do you realize this about yourself? Do you realize this about the people that you're surrounded by? And, and this is true of every human life. This speaks to the dignity of every human life. You know, right now there's a debate going on in the Supreme Court about the Roe v. Wade decision, the case of abortion. And it's a case about defending unborn human life. The pro-life folks would say that every life should be defended. This is a basic understanding of human rights. And the pro-abortion folks would say, well, no, only the lives should be defended that have certain capacities. That's kind of the argument that's being used. What capacities do you have to have to make your life viable? Well, that's a very dangerous place to be if you're only made valuable by your capacities. It becomes, well, what capacities, right? Who gets to decide what capacities? You know, what capacities are truly valuable or not valuable? Is that really how we understand human rights? Right? That somebody would decide that this is a capacity that, is necessary for life? What if you lose a capacity? Or what if the powerful people decide that the capacities that you do have aren't really worth keeping around? It's actually a terrifying philosophy. But, but Christians obviously don't have that philosophy. We don't believe that you're made dignified or whole because of your capacity. No, we believe that every human life, every human life has enormous capacity. You know something interesting? The human zygote, when you were all one cell, you all used to be just one cell, okay? I remember you then, you were so cute. You, know. you all used to be just one little cell, okay? And your genetic makeup today is no more complex than it was then. When you were just one cell, your genetic complexity was as complex then as it is right now. You wanna talk about capacity? That's enormous capacity. You know, Christians believe that we don't have to prove that we are dignified because we can do something, but that every human life, no matter who, has dignity and value that's sacred. And so, to quote Lewis, this matters. You know, it matters. You may not be making a life and death decision every day, but you know the kind of decisions you are making every day? Who you'll let in front of you in traffic, how you'll treat the person serving you coffee, what you'll say in response to the person at work that is cruel to you. There's no ordinary people. We've been made in the image of God. There's distinct value and beauty to every human life. 
Number two, the image of God implies relationship. One of the most amazing words or a couple of words in this passage is the word us and our. Let us make man in our likeness. What does that mean? God creating man. Let us, there's no, <clears throat> there's no men, there's no women around at this time. Us, our, first person plural. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but this is the Bible speaking to the Trinitarian nature of God. That God in his eternal existence, I want you to hear this, has existed in relationship. That God in his eternal existence is Trinitarian. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God who exists in perfect harmony, unity, and love. We like to say God is love. People like that Bible verse. But have you ever really thought about what that means? It doesn't just say God is loving. God acts in a loving way. No, it says God is ontologically, essentially love. The only way that God exists, three persons being perfectly uh, unified into one God, this triunity of God exists in love. God is the, the part of God's very essence and ontology is relationship. And he has created you, and I want you to hear this, to be in relationship with him. That's an amazing thing to believe. Have you ever thought about that? God wants you to be in relationship with him. That's the most important thing about you. You know, A.W. Tozer once said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I would phrase it this way. Whether you know God or not, like how you know God, if you know him or you don't know him, that's the most important thing about you. Well, what do I have more important than that? What can I say better than, you know, I could say I drive a Chevy Silverado and you might be impressed. It's an awesome truck, like a rock. <laughs> but is that more impressive than me saying I know God? God loves me. God has called me into relationship with himself. This is fundamentally the most important thing about every person in this room. And the offer of knowing God and being in union with God is available to every person in this room through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how God has made you. And this makes us unique as human beings made in the image of God. There, there isn't a convention of rabbits uh, in these woods over here talking about how they can love God more. No, this is, he's made us relational beings in his image so that we can relate to him and so we can relate to one another. Everything in God's creation says something about him. The skies proclaim his handiwork, the rivers clap their hands, the mountains sing for joy, but human beings alone can love him and are in a relational way loved by him. And I believe this, this haunts a secular age, doesn't it? This is why we believe in God at funerals. We, 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 there's still this image of God in us, even the most secular person that, that still like wants to know God somehow. Christopher Hitchens, one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, he died about 10 years ago. He was diagnosed with cancer. And right before he died, he was asked, well, a few months before he died, he was asked, what is your greatest fear? And I've never forgotten this. And he said, and he spent his whole life disputing faith claims. He spent his whole life trying to lead people away from faith in, in theism, faith in God. 
not just Christianity, but all faiths. So his whole life, pointing people away from God, and he was asked a few months before he died, what's your greatest fear? And he said that I would cry out to God on my deathbed. Now, the interesting thing about that is not that he didn't, he, that he didn't want to cry out to God on his deathbed. The interesting thing about that is that he might have an instinct to cry out to God on his deathbed. Why? What is that? We're haunted by this because it's how we're made. We're sacred. We're relational. Three, there's something functional about us. The creation account is so important because you see God creating the world out of nothing, ordering the world, and then calling us to kind of do the same thing. Creation and order, right? If you look at the creation account, there's actually days where God's kind of making things and then days where he's kind of ordering, he's filling the things that he's made. Well, in the same way, that's exactly what he commands us to do. Look at verse 28. So God's created humanity and he says he blessed them and he said, be fruitful, multiply, right? This amazing thing that living things can bring about more living things. So I have created, I want you to create, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and then now have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves about the earth. Creation and order. As I have created and I have ordered, I want you to create, bring about life, fill the earth, and then bring about order to the earth. Now this speaks to something that we're gonna be talking about in this series, the very important parts of human life, sex and multiplication and work. Okay, and we're gonna talk, we're gonna have a whole sermon on both of those things. So part of our functionality as people being made in the image of God is that we would create, we would bring about life, and that we would work, that we would order. Now again, I got whole sermons on this coming up, but let me just say one word to get you ready for your work week, okay? When you work, when you rightly understand these things, that you've been made in the image of God, God has called you to be a part of ordering his creation. There's something incredibly satisfying in that. You know, you can bring delight to the Lord and how you bring about order. And, and this is one of the reasons that you like your jobs, many of you, as much as you do. Now, again, there's another side of work. We'll talk about that too. But there's something satisfying in work because you are bringing about order. You are doing the thing that God has created you to do. You're bringing about order and chaos, which is exactly what God did. He created and ordered out of nothing. Exactly what he calls Adam to do, go tend to the garden. And every job's kind of like that. Ian Witherspoon, I don't know if he's here, but he goes to our church. He cuts my hair. He's a barber, right? That job right there, what does he do? He brings order out of chaos. I come to him with this messy mop, and he styles it and orders it and cuts it. Lindsay Metters, I was just thinking about her. I don't know if she's here or not, but she's a nurse. You know what nurses do? They bring incredible order out of chaos. You come to nurses, and you're sick, and you're about to die, and they heal you. They figure out what you need. Leslie Van, she's, she's an artist. Again, how do you do that? How do you take all these raw materials of color and canvas and make something incredibly beautiful? Well, when you do that, the reason that's satisfying is when you do that, you're actually doing something that God has put into you. There's a functionality of being made in the image of God that he put into you from your very creation. Functional capacity, subduing the creation. It's amazing what we've been able to do. Again, more on this in a few weeks. 
But finally, we've talked about the sacred nature of this, the relational nature of this, the functional nature of this, but finally, representation. We're called to represent God. We're called to, represent, to be his representatives. In the ancient Near East, kings would have an image, and that image would serve as a sign of their authority. And oftentimes, the image was held on a ring, a signet ring, right? And so if you had the ring, you had the authority. If you had the image, you could represent the king. And in fact, we actually see this in the Bible. Genesis 41, Pharaoh is kind of appointing Joseph to be the Lord over this huge anti-famine project that they're going to do. And he's like, I want you to have everything you need. And here's what he says. I think we have the passage up on the screen. He, um, Pharaoh says, uh, see, I've set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand. Oh, we, did, we didn't make a slide for this. Sorry, guys. They're like, where's the slide? I didn't make one. Pharaoh and Joseph, see, I've said you over the land. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. What's happening there? Pharaoh was saying, you're having my image. And because you have my image, you have my authority. You're going to represent me. You're going to go out as my agent. In fact, people would even call these signets images of God, the images of God, because the kings were known to be divine. When God says that you have been made in the image of God, there's a sacredness to this. You've been made like him. You're an eternal being. There's a relationship component to this. Come into relationship with this triune God. There's a functional component to this, but there's also a representative. Don't you see what God is saying? He's put his whole image on you. He's put this whole signet ring, as it were, on your whole life. And he says, you go out and as you live and as you worship and as you know me, you image me. You're going to fill the earth, and my glory through you is going to fill the earth. Don't you see what God has done here? You are sacred beings, loved by God, called to love as God loves, called to work as God works, and so represent God. That's who you are. That's who I am. This is our identity. This is who we're made to be. And the more we know God, the more we understand God, the more we're able to live this out, the more joy and wholeness and peace and satisfaction we will find. But we live in a secular age. We live in an age that has tried to put God to death. We live in an age that tells us all the time, don't receive that identity. Make your own identity. Do your own thing. Go your own way. And that age has left humanity in a state where we're so confused that we have no form, no ends, no purpose, no identity. Man is dead. But worse than that, because we have this tendency to run away from God, to disobey him, to not follow his order, we're really dead. The Bible says that we're dead in our sin. We're dead in our disobedience. We're dead in the fact that we have gone away from the design and order and glory of a holy and glorious and good God. You know, in a world like the world we live in, when you remove God from the picture, all you have are the functions, right? If you take God out, there's still this tendency we have for relationships. But relationships are so confusing because we don't know how to order them. There's no order behind them. 
we still have this tendency to multiply uh, for sex and multiplication because God's told us to do this. But we don't know how to do that because you've removed the order, right? If you remove God, we still have this tendency to subdue the earth and to work and to order. The functions are still there if you remove God, but there's nothing behind them. And so they become confusing. And you know what we've done with all of these things? And this is really what the rest of the series is about. We've made them our identity. It's, it's the group that we're a part of that's become our identity. It's sex that's become our identity. It's our work that's become our identity. And we're more confused than ever. And we're lost and we're dead in our sins. But the great news of the gospel is this. For people like us, the people who've killed God, the people who wanted to be God, God has been merciful to us. The Bible says we're dead in our sins, but we've been made alive in Christ. And what that means is, is that God has sent for us a redeemer, a rescuer, a savior in his son, Jesus. And Jesus came. The great, amazing news of the gospel is that God himself was willing to become a man, to live out this image of God. Colossians says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And Jesus lived his life as we're all supposed to live our lives, according to this calling, by the image of God. He, he understood his sacred nature. He understood the relational capacity. He understood his function. He understood how he was representing the Lord, and he did represent the Lord perfectly. But because of God's mercy for you and me, because God wanted to bring us back in, because God wanted to bring dead people like us and make us alive, he was willing to take the living Jesus and send him to a cross on our behalf because of our sin. Jesus got the cross. Jesus died so that we could come alive. And here's the better news. Jesus got the cross so that in him, we could get the crown. I want you to hear this, church. God didn't just save you to save you. That's not what Christianity is about, that you just kind of get a little, get out of jail free card and you can stand in the back of heaven, but don't make any noise. No. God has created you with a purpose, with a distinct purpose. The Bible says that we're called to reign with Jesus. It's, it's like Joseph and Pharaoh. God used Joseph to save all of Egypt, to save lands around Egypt. God has purposes for you. And you'll know that and you'll live those out. Now, that, that may not be that you're like doing some big political thing. I mean, that's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is, is that you find your identity in God's imprinting his nature, his image on you. As you find your identity in knowing the Lord and the functionality that he's given you, as you find your identity as God's representative, oh, there's so much weight and purpose and value in that. Don't you see who you are? who God wants to make you to be, but you have to die. <laughs> That's the way to get there. You, you have to give up on this follow your own arrow wherever it points kind of life that we, we want to live. It sounds so cool. You have to give up on that. And you have to say, no, no, I, I, I am who God made me to be. I want to close with this passage. It's from 2 Timothy. Let me put it on the screen here. It's as if we've died with him, right? If, we, if we've given up on our identity and we found our identity in Christ, we will also live with him. 
And if we endure, if we keep following him, keep looking at Jesus, we'll reign with him. Not just in this life. God doesn't just want to use our lives in this life. He wants to use us for all of eternity to live and to be full and to find glory in him. We'll reign with him if we deny him. Here's the invitation. The way to life is here, but if you deny him, he will deny us. But even when we are faithless, I want you to hear this. This is such good news. This is such good news. You know what? I'm so often faithless. Uh, my secular tendencies go up. My secular humanism, I'm the preacher. But even me, I sort of think, I don't really need God here. I got this. This is, I, I, I want to kind of go my own way here. I want to do my own thing. Even when I'm faithless, God is faithful to call us back to himself. Repent, repent. I pray that even right now, the spirit of God is convicting this church. And if that's happening to you, repent and look to Christ. Look to Christ. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I, I'm really in awe of what you've made us to be, the sacred nature of our human existence, made in the image of God. There's such an identity there. I pray, Father, we'd live this out, that we would relate to you and relate to the people you loved and you do love. Father, I pray that we would function as people made in the image of God, that we would rightly represent you, that in Christ you would do all of this. In Christ you would bring what is dead in us to life. And so, Lord, turn our eyes to him today. Father, turn our hearts toward Jesus. Keep your heads bowed, but... I just, I just want to give you a moment to just turn your heart to the Lord, to just realize that all we have is Christ. He's our hope, but it's a good hope. It's a perfect hope. Then in him, we can be fully alive, fully made right with God. We can be who we were designed and created to be. So if, if even in this moment, the Lord is putting something in your heart or convicting you of sin, repent of that and look to Jesus. Look to his cross. Remember the cross that he has given for you and remember the crown that he has for you. And live in faith. And so Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts lead us to this kind of faith, I pray in Jesus' name.